uh, the greatest sermon ever preached, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. That's our emphasis for today, and uh, I trust that God will use it in our lives. Before I go any further, though, I, I know we prayed several times today, but I want to go to the Lord and just ask God to speak to our hearts. And so let's just humbly go before him, asking for him to work. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We're going to read your words. You said these very words 2,000 years ago to a crowd numbering in the thousands. Out of this group arose just over 100 people who understood who you were. And Lord, then they were sent out by you. And they have reached the world, practically the world, almost the world, with your gospel. And now, Lord, here we are. We want to hear from you again. The same way the crowds did that day. The same way believers have over the generations as they have read and as they have understood who you are and what your message is to us. So now, Lord, speak to our hearts and may we respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you heard of Mary Lee McKay? Me neither. Um, she, she identifies herself as the manners mentor. She is America's modern manners and etiquette expert. Oh, I really want to hear what she has to say, don't you? So, so she is the, the, maybe the country's foremost expert on etiquette. And I thought today we'd open up and see what she has to say to us. She's been on Oprah. She's been on Dr. Phil. She's been a guest on CNN and Fox News before talking about how it is that we are supposed to respond and react to one another. And so here on her website, she, she has this article that I want to share with you. She said, as always, thank you for being part of the Manners Mentor family. I don't know if we have any actual members of the Manners Mentor family here in the room. You don't have to identify yourself, okay? We know who you are. Your etiquette is just amazing. We're very impressed. So here's what she says. Today's post is a reader's question and answer. Its topic is one we can all relate to because everyone seems to agree that it's the number one etiquette violation. Oh, here it is. The number one etiquette violation. In fact, when I meet people and they find out what line of work I'm in, they always want to talk to me about this topic first. Now, if I bumped into Mary Lynn, whatever, McKay, the manners mentor, I'm not sure this is the question I would ask her, but she's going to share with us the number one question. I mean, this is must happen to her all the time. She's just walking through the mall or down the street, and people are like, oh, Mary Lee, is that you? Why, come here. I've got a question for you about etiquette. So what's, what's she going to bring up? Any idea? The number one etiquette problem that we all have. Yawning in public. X, Y, Z, what is it? What, what's the problem? What do we all, what, what's this issue that we all have? She says, they always talk about this topic first. It's something that's so easy to do, yet no one seems to do it. Maybe cover your mouth when you yawn. Is, is that what, it, I don't know. The lack of it frustrates us. It confounds us and even makes us mad sometimes. You know what it is? You have something in your mind? The number one etiquette problem. Okay. The odd thing is that everyone complains about it. 
A lot of us are annoyed that people don't do it, yet we must not be showing them the love in reverse either. Have you guessed what this violation of graciousness and consideration is? Well, now, even though I'm kind of making fun of Mary Lee, she actually is putting a finger on a pretty good thing here, okay? I haven't told you what it is yet. But I would say that Jesus was equally frustrated with this problem. And we're going we're gonna to deal with it today. I put a French phrase on your worship notes. Did you see it? I'm going to say it for you. Ready? <clears throat> Répondez, s'il vous plaît. How's that sound? Any French experts in the room? Any French? Did that sound right? Was that good? Was that, and what does that stand for? Or how do I usually state that? And... RSVP. That's what she says, the number one adequate adequate violation that we have. We don't RSVP. And you know what? In a lot of ways, she's right. We do struggle with that. We we don't respond. Today, I want to talk about responding. We are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is calling for a response. And there's something in us as human beings that we struggle sometimes to decide. We like to ride the fence. We like to kind of be in and out. We, we, we like to wait for the right time. I'm going to wait for the right time to do this or to do that. When the moment's right, I'm going to do this. And certainly there is some wisdom in waiting for the right time to do some things. But when it comes to the call of Christ, the time is now. The time is now. And what we're going to see here in in the Gospel of Matthew is there are a group of people numbering in the thousands in this moment and now numbering in the millions or billions who have heard the teaching of Jesus, who have been moved in their spirit potentially, have, have desired maybe what he's talking about, and they don't respond. Jesus is going to demand a response. This isn't just an etiquette problem. It's a spiritual problem. And I want to remind you of this truth that we have emphasized of late together, and that's this. No response is a no response. When you don't respond, you are saying no. Jesus has walked through and talked about false teachers and good teachers. He's talked about believers and false believers. He's talked about a narrow road, a broad road. He talked about building on sand, building on the rock. And we have to understand today that no response is a no response. Let me show you what I want to point out to us today. It's just two verses. Two verses in Matthew chapter 7. It's the last two verses of, of really what is labeled the Sermon on the Mount. And in truth, in truth, they're not even the words of Jesus. They're now the words of the Gospel writer Matthew, as he concludes for us what happened on this day on the mountainside. Verse number 28, Matthew chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. That's our passage for today. And I believe God's going to speak to us through it. 
Let's, re- let's remind ourselves where we've been together. As we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount, we, we've tried to emphasize the fact that Jesus is, is placing emphasis upon really two things. He is the king, and he is establishing a kingdom. He is the king of the universe, and he is establishing a kingdom. And we've walked through this together, and this has been the point. It's, it's even broader than the point of the Sermon on the Mount. I would suggest to you that it is the, the whole point of the Gospel of Matthew. He is the king, and he is establishing a kingdom. Look at Matthew 1.1 with me. I'll just show you from the very start. This is what Matthew, as the Spirit of God, has inspired his writing. This is what God's Spirit wants us to know through this gospel writer named Matthew. Verse number 1.1 started out with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that seems like nothing to us. It seems like just a, almost like a, you know, dear John, dear, dear Mike. It's just, it's just something very small, but it's not at all. When Matthew wrote that Jesus was the son of David, that's identifying him as the king of the universe, the king. And when he says he's the son of Abraham, that means he is establishing a kingdom that had been promised to Abraham thousands of years before. There had been a king promised through David. There had been a kingdom promised through Abraham. And now God is fulfilling his promise. A king and a kingdom. A king and a kingdom. Over and over and over. Go to the last verse. Go all the way to the very end of the Matthew. And look here. It's here again. The last couple verses, really. Matthew chapter 28. Look at verse number 18, 19, and 20 with me. We've been talking about these together. We, we quote this at the end of our service together. We call it the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king, is what he's saying. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Spread my kingdom. This is what the gospel of Matthew is calling us to. A king and a kingdom. Over and over and over. Go back with me now to Matthew chapter 7. And and let me talk to you a little more, in a little more detail about the gospel of Matthew. Because I want us to understand today that that Jesus is, is communicating some things about himself. King and a kingdom. You can think of that as a ruler or a rule. As the ruler of the universe, Jesus will demonstrate his power. He's going to demonstrate his power as a ruler of the universe. As the king and ruler, he will demonstrate his power. And secondly, as as he shows us the rule of the king, how the kingdom will operate, he's going to communicate, he's going to communicate the truth to us. We're going to see this over and over. And what happens in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, is a very significant moment. And I want to take a few minutes because the authority here is not me. It is God's words. And I want to show you something that the Spirit of God has done with Matthew's writings that's showing us that this is a significant moment. In Matthew chapter 28, the the beginning phrase of, of that verse says this, And when Jesus had finished these sayings. See that there? Seems so insignificant. Seems so small. But we need to remember that when God inspired his word 
Every word is inspired. And the thing about that phrase, when Jesus finished, it is a, it is a very important phrase. It is a turning point phrase. It is a turning point phrase. Each time you see that phrase, what has happened here is Jesus has ended a major block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. We have Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the longest sections of Jesus' teaching that we have recorded. In reality, if you just read it from beginning to end, it'd take about 30 minutes to read from beginning to end. And now it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, something happens. And here's what happens five times in the Gospel of Matthew. Five different times we see this turning point happen. Where we see the same phrase. You also find it in Matthew chapter 11. Turn over there with me. Just follow along in your Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Verse number 1. Matthew 11, 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, something happens. This turning point concept happens over and over. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse number 53. I love to hear that sound right there. I know a lot of us have it on our phones, but it's a great sound to hear the Bible pages turning. We're center point Bible church. We're all about what does the Bible have to say to us? How has God communicated to us? Matthew 13, look at verse number 53. And when Jesus, 53, 13, 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, here's that phrase again. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show it all five times. Matthew 19, verse number one. Matthew 19, one. And when Jesus finished these sayings, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him. And one more time, in Matthew 26, verse number 1, 26, 1, and when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, what is my point in taking this time to show you this? You must remember that the Gospel of Matthew is not a biography. It is not a biography. A biography is when somebody writes the events of someone's life, possibly in chronological order, and they just kind of tell you the story of their life. That's not what the Gospel of Matthew is. A Gospel is a, a selected narrative the Spirit of God has worked in the Apostle Matthew's mind that he would select parts of Jesus' life and he would share them with us for a theological point. Okay? This is not a biography. It's a gospel. And so what Matthew has done is he's shared selective parts of Jesus' life because he's trying to drive us to a decision. A decision today. And all five times we have this extended teaching of Jesus we have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew chapter 10, we have Jesus instructing his apostles before he sends them out. In Matthew chapter 13, we have the apostles, the apostles hearing the parables of Jesus as Jesus shares the parables of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 18, we have Jesus instructing them about what's going to happen after he leaves. And in Matthew chapter 23 through 25, we have Jesus correcting the Pharisees. Each time we have the instructions of Jesus so that we would respond 
to these words. This is what God is calling you to. Not to marvel or be astonished, but to respond. I hope that you will look more at that that pattern that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, but I really have to get on with my main point for today. And that's turning point number one. Turning point number one. We find it in verse number 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Turning point number one is this, that the king is going to unveil God's character. He is unveiling God's character. That's what he's doing. Jesus has now come into the world. He's now showing all that will listen what God is really like. When he finished these sayings, referring back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's unveiling the very character of God. We've dealt with this together over the last few months. We had this sort of fourfold theme. Do you remember what it is? This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Number one, God is holy. As Jesus sort of knocked off the barnacles off our eyes so we could see the character of God, he says, he is holy. He is different than humans. God is not like your best friend, though a little bit better. He's not like your father, but a little bit better. He's not like your husband, but a little bit better. He's not like your wife or your mother, but a little bit better. That's not, that's not how we're to look at God. He's not this nice guy who lives in the sky that's here to watch out for you. That is not God. God is holy, completely different than us. He is righteous, and he is pure, and he is good, and he is loving But he is also just and he is a judge and he is all present and all knowing and everywhere, everywhere, all the time, all powerful. This great God. And Jesus showed us his character. Look, just just a couple examples just because I want you to see it's right here in the Bible. Go to Matthew 5, verse number 17. Look what Jesus says. As he's letting us see who God is, Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's showing us who God is. He's filling up our minds of what God is like. He's not like man. Verse number 20, look at 520. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see what he's saying? This, the scribes and the Pharisees are the most righteous people, perhaps, that have ever lived, quite honestly. They were, they were rock-solid people. They, they made an effort and, and would often exceed this effort to live out the law. Oh, they couldn't live it perfectly because nobody can. But Jesus has them as this test case in front of them. And he says, you got to exceed that to be in the kingdom of heaven. What is the point? You cannot be this. God is holy. And that isn't all that Jesus has to say. He also wants, as he unveils the character of God, he's letting us see that not only is God holy, but what? That man is holy broken. Man is broken. Just as a sampling, I want you to see this. Look at 521. You're right there. 
You have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother. Do you have a brother? Did you ever get angry with him? (laughs) Of course. My brother drove me nuts. And I drove him crazy, right? This is even broader than that. Get angry with your brother. Get angry at another person. And Jesus says, you do that, you'll be liable to judgment. So we are a murderer. We are a murderer just by our anger. God is holy. Man is broken. What else does God want us, Jesus want us to see about God? Turn over a couple pages, and that's this, that grace is available. Look at Matthew chapter 6 now. Let's just page through the Sermon on the Mount and look at verse number 9 with me. We're going to see that grace is available. This is the message of Jesus. This is what he had to say to his listeners. God is holy. Man is broken. Grace is available. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holiness of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's got to be his will because man is broken. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The grace of God is available. Oh, forgive us. Forgive us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The grace of God is available. This has been the message of Jesus. And finally, that he conforms his followers to his image. And just to show you that, just real briefly, Look at verse number 21 of chapter 7, and we'll get back to our main passage for today. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, this is number 21, chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the grace of God available. The grace of God. You say, how is that grace? That doesn't sound like grace. That's like the opposite of grace. That sounds like judgment. Oh, but look what it says. Depart from me. I never knew you. The grace of God is found in knowing the Son. Not in doing the work, but in knowing the Son. I didn't know you, so depart from me. Jesus says, come and know me. Come and know God. Now this is what he said. Chapter 7, verse number 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, He is the only king, and he is unveiling the character of God. This is what he had said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. God is holy. Man is broken. Grace is available. Be conformed to his image. Now, it's not all the verse has to say, though. There's a warning here. Look what Matthew records next. Let's read it again. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished. The word astonished means to be amazed. 
It literally means to be driven out of your head is what it actually means. It means that your senses cannot process what you are seeing or hearing. So you're out of your head. You're, they're, they're, just, they're blown away, we would say that. We would say that they were blown away by what they had just heard. So we've, we've understood this scene. Jesus is up on a mountain, as far as we know. And there are literally thousands of people gathered around him, a huge crowd. And after Jesus has done this teaching, some of them are dumbfounded. They can't even respond. Matthew says they were astonished. It's interesting. Matthew uses that word 13 times to describe people. I'm sorry, let me correct that. The gospel writers use that word astonished 13 times to describe people's response to Jesus. Astonished. 13 times people were astonished by Jesus. 13 times they were amazed. 13 times they were driven out of their senses. They were dumbfounded. They had no response. Of that 13, 12 of them was a response to Jesus' teaching. To his teaching. It wasn't the miracles that Jesus did. It wasn't the lepers that he cleansed. It wasn't that he walked on water. It wasn't that the blind could see. It's that he taught them. He spoke to them. And even the 13th is a little bit questionable. We can't really be sure what astonished those that heard So it is evident to us from this passage and every other time that it's used that the thing that moves people's hearts is the Word of God. It's not some supernatural act. Jesus would heal people. Jesus would do these things, and they would say, oh, yeah, show us a sign. Jesus would heal a blind man. Yeah, well, do something to show us that you're for real. This is not what moves man's heart. This is not what changes a person's heart. It's God's words. They were astonished, meaning they were amazed, they were dumbfounded, but that word is never, not once, used to describe a regeneration. It is never once used to describe a person being saved. It is never once used describing a person who was born again. You know what this means? You can be astonished by Jesus. You can be amazed by his teaching and walk away a child of the devil just as much as you were before you ever got there. Being astonished or amazed or moved in your heart and think that he has really good things to say is not responding to the gospel. RSVP is very important. But an RSVP is not, oh, that's good teaching. Oh, that's really neat what Jesus has to say. No. He's looking for more than that. He doesn't want you to be astonished or amazed at the, at the organization of his thoughts or the outline of his sermon or the great ethical teaching that he shared or the, or the moralistic ideas that were communicated by this poor Jewish fisherman. I'm describing how people try to describe the Sermon on the Mount got an article here. I'll take just a minute and read this, if I can find it in all my papers. Here it is. Returning to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the, out of the opinion pages of the New York Times. Well, I'm sure this is going to be very helpful, wouldn't you say? This is what it says. This author, Gary Gutting, writes this. What is most important about Christianity is the moral code of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do you hear that? 
What is, what is most important about Christianity is the moral code of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We must free it from the dubious theology and the corrupting politics that have plagued the institutional church. We've got to get the moral code that Jesus intended in the Sermon on the Mount. He writes, non-Christians and even atheists profess admiration for the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, they do. Why, even Thomas Jefferson was quoted as saying, it is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered. Oh yeah, that great theological giant, Thomas Jefferson. I'm sorry, he did not believe in any supernatural activity at all. He denied the existence of supernatural. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He did not believe that God could even work in this world anymore. And he said it was the most sublime, the the strongest moral code ever. Jesus tells us, this author says, that we must lead a good life. And that we should love one another. And this requires us helping others to lead good lives as well. This is garbage, folks. This is not the teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, however, does not offer a clear view of what makes for a good life. Many seem to think Jesus is saying little more than be nice to everybody. Others see a heroic life of, of total non-resistance or self-sacrifice. Others believe that he is requiring little more than an enhanced version of the Ten Commandments. What's the answer? He says Jesus does not explicitly or decisively endorse the contemporary values that we value now, like democratic government, the abolition of slavery, the equality of women. Huh? See what's going on here. There's, if this is a moral code. If this is how we're to live as good boys and good girls, why are we so confused by it? One more quote. One more quote. He says, Solomon is right that Christian churches as fallible institutions are truly obstacles to what it means to fruitfully understand Christ's moral message in the Sermon on the Mount. He's right about that. He's 100% right. I am an obstacle to you thinking that the Sermon on the Mount is a moral teaching. I stand here today and directly oppose that thought right now. If you think that you can live the Sermon on the Mount and be good enough and be loving enough and be meek enough and and do all these things that Jesus describes. And through that, earn your way to God. I want to tell you right now, that is a lie of Satan. I stand morally against that lie right now. Look at me standing here. I'm telling you just what that guy said. Yep, I stand against that teaching. Do not be astonished by the teachings of Jesus. No. Be changed. Be changed. And that's where Jesus goes. See, he's unveiling mankind's depravity. He's showing us the the, the, the depraved nature of man. He's unveiling mankind's depravity. That we can be convinced that something is astonishing, that we can be moved by something and not regenerated. You can applaud at Jesus and not be born again. You can sit here and say, this is good teaching, and die and go to hell. 
This is the level of man's depravity. We are totally depraved. That doesn't mean we are as bad as we could possibly be. That's what that, not what that means. It means every part of us has been cursed by sin. Every part of you. Listen what has been cursed by sin. It, it's had a devastating effect in your life. It affects the whole person. It, it grips us physically, so now we die. It grips us morally, so we sin. It grips us volitionally. That means what we do, so we're a slave to sin. It, this depravity, it grips us eternally, so if, if not dealt with, we spend eternity separated from God. But I'm leaving last this concept. Now listen to this. The depravity of man grips us mentally. Here's what this means. We can be moved in our minds and think, this is pretty good teaching. This is sublime. This is wonderful. This is a glorious moral coat. And leave lost. Because we're depraved. So where does Jesus end this? Well, we got one more phrase. Verse 29. Let's go there. The crowds that are astonished at his teaching, but why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He was teaching unlike any other. There was an authority to his words there was an authority to his person. There's an authority to Jesus that is unlike any other. Unlike any other. You have to understand how the teaching would have operated in that day when it says, not as their scribes. Not as their scribes. Scribes in that day, they were, they were called lawyers. They, they were the first century Judaism lawyers. And what that meant was is they were experts at the Old Testament and how people have interpreted it over centuries. Now, so here's what would happen. People would come to a scribe and say, hey, listen, this thing or that thing happened. What should we do? And the scribes were experts, just like our lawyers today. They were experts of case law. So they would retreat back, and they put their heads together and say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this. And they bring back a decision. No authority on their own. Their only authority came from what other people said. But when Jesus came on the scene, he called God his father. He said, your father who is in secret sees you. He says, your father will reward you. He says, I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. The authority of Jesus. He's not a good teacher. He's not an ancient sage. He's not a prophet. He's not a yogi to be admired. He is God. And he speaks with that authority. He speaks of God in personal terms. My father. He speaks of eternal judgment in personal terms. Depart from me. I never knew you. He speaks of his children, those that have been born again, as his sheep who know his voice. 
Every time that Matthew uses this phrase, every time, in verse number 28, and when Jesus had finished, every time that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that phrase, there is a call for a response. Every time. You heard what Jesus said. You have been exposed to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus has revealed the character of the Father. Jesus has revealed the depravity of man. Jesus has spoken with authority. What say you? Every time that phrase is used, we are called to respond. We have to ask. We have to wrestle. Have you RSVP'd? Have you responded to Jesus? Said, I see who God is. I see my brokenness. And I respond to his grace. I receive his forgiveness. The cross that is far ahead of him at this point, when Jesus said this, the cross is two years away, but he would come and give his life as a ransom for the world so that all who received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God, but only to those who received him, not to those who were astonished, not to those who were amazed, not to those who were confused, not to those who were really moved by this moral teacher. No, to those who received him, he gave the right. Have you received him? Am I thankful for that day that you did? Has God burdened your heart like he's burdened mine with this world that needs to hear the real message of Jesus? Oh, they're so lost. So many people around us, they don't understand what this Jesus talk is all about. They read the Sermon on the Mount and they're confused. They say, how can this happen? This is impossible. This goes against. Turn the other cheek. What is this? I can't be angry. If I, if I look at a woman to lust for her, I've committed adultery in my heart. This is impossible. I can't, this moral teaching is beyond my capability. Yes. Yes. It is God. It is Jesus who has offered us life. That call doesn't end with just that decision. The next time that Jesus, well, Matthew, record these words. You'll find it in Matthew 11. 1. I trust you're going to read it this week. And this time it's a little different response. And it's how I want to end our time today. The response in Matthew 11 is a little bit different. And it's this. Will you go? Will you go? So you know who this Father is. You know who this God is. You know who this Jesus is. Will you be sent into the world around us. Oh, that's a great place for us to end, especially on this anniversary Sunday. I'll put this picture up on the screen. You know, the Lord burdened some of us 12 years ago, 12 years ago, with part of our community that needed to know the truth about Christ. Many of you, your home is located very close, if not in that picture. This is our community. 
These are the very people who have no idea what these sayings of Jesus really mean. Oh, they're astonished some. They're amazed some. But most of them are not regenerated. That means born again. That means new life in Christ. Most of them do not have that. It was 11 years ago, 12 years ago really, but just over 11 years ago that God kind of planted this dream in some of our hearts. That God seemed to be bringing people to our community. That God seemed to be bringing people to Berkeley County. Oh sure, some people were being sent out with this message and to the far ends of the earth, but God seemed to be bringing people to us. You know our first indicator? You know what it was? I'm going to laugh at this. The very first indicator that God was getting ready to bring people to Berkeley County, and I remember it very clearly, when I heard that a Walmart was coming to the Spring Mills exit. That's how long ago this dream was born. I said, Walmart? Hmm. If Walmart's coming, so are people. And so some of us, a dozen years ago, started dreaming about a church in the Spring Mills community. I invite you to this mission. Oh, we ministered there in that community for, a, for 10 years, a little more than that. God gave us a great opportunity there in the Spring Mills Middle School. It was sweet, wasn't it? Wasn't that neat? I remember when the principal told us we could meet there. He had told three other churches, no. He stood in front of the school with myself and Pastor Billy and dreamed about a church being right there in that community. He said, they say there's going to be thousands of homes all over these fields. We need a church right here in the middle of that, don't we? I said, yeah, we really do. God did another miracle one time, and that was that we saw this field there in Spring Mills. We said, you know, that'd be a pretty neat place for us to put a church. Or if we could buy it. Called the owner. No way could we afford that property. No way. So we prayed, and we waited, till the day the owner called me and said, Lo, I want you to have this property. I want, no, I want the church to have this property. And so God provided us a piece of property there in Spring Mills community that was far beyond our means. Far beyond our means. And God gave it to us. We dreamed about how, what we might do on that property, remember? We dreamed about it. We had pictures and we had ideas. And then God said, no, I don't think that's it. But here's what I'm going to do for you. You know the money you invested in that property? I never heard any of this, okay? This is just how the events came together. You know that money you invested in that property? I'm going to quadruple it. I'm going to quadruple it. And so now we've got people knocking on our door saying, can we buy that property? We'd like to pay four times what you did. Can we buy that property? And we say, all right. And we sought the Lord. We sought the Lord. I remember us wrestling through this like, Lord, we thought this is what you wanted. We thought this is what you wanted. And we gripped with white knuckles. Till one day we said, Lord, it's yours. We let go. 
And then that fateful day a year ago, got a call from the school system said, time to leave. Some of us panicked. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? The Lord took care of us, brought, opened up doors here for us that have been great. And listen, just this past June, I'll show you the next slide here. Just this past June, the Lord did another miracle, folks. God's not done. He's not done. He laid a piece of property on our lap, again, another piece of property that wasn't for sale. And it was an amazing opportunity for us. And now we're seeking the Lord to continue to lead. Centerpoint Bible Church, we understand who God is. We understand what Jesus has done. And now we're responding to his mission. Over the next two to three months, there will be significant moments in the life of our church. Three to four months from now, we will be a different church. Oh, many things will be the same. But our opportunities are getting ready to explode. Opportunities to tell people the truth about who Jesus is. The truth about his teaching. To call other people to a decision. And I invite you with us. Come with us in this journey of what God has revealed that he wants to do. Now to get there, we're going to have to work together. We're going to have to work together. And we're going to have to do things. We're going to have to sacrifice together and invest our lives together to jump on what God is doing. But I invite you to it. Just next month in October, I was Pastor Brock to work his way up here. Just next month in October, we're, we're, we're going to call the body together to invest in what God is doing. You, it doesn't take a genius to know. To move back into that building at Spring Mills, it's going to require a few things. It's going, to require, it's going to require you, all of you, and all you have. Just that. That's it. You, all of you, and all you have. That's all we're asking for. Pretty simple, right? You, all you are, and all you have. And one of those ways is going to be through an, invest, an investment campaign that we're going to be going through in the very, very new future, in the fall. And we want you to join with us because in 10 more years, I want to tell the story of what God has done. And I want you to be sitting there saying, yeah, I was there. I was there. I sat in that cafeteria alone. So you only know the story from me. Pastor Billy and I stood in front of that school, just the two of us. So you only know that story from us. This is now an opportunity for all of us to come together as people who know the truth and respond to him. I've asked Brock to give us just an idea of what, what, the, what October is going to look like. Well, really September and October. So go ahead, Brock. I, I was thinking as Pastor Lowell was speaking this morning, I had a professor at Appalachian Bible College who used to say the phrase, men are God's method. And he said that phrase over and over and over again, the idea that God uses people. Isn't it an awesome concept that God would choose to use people to do what he's doing here on this earth? And just the awesome idea that we can now invest in what God is going to do in the Spring Mills area as we look to physically move back over there. And it's going to be an investment. 
It's going to be investment of your energy, your time, your finances, your skills, the gifts that God has given you. It's going to be a huge investment. But man, what an opportunity to be able to look at it and say, God used us to reach people in Spring Mills. Man, I look forward to that. We want to help you to understand as you begin praying about how God is going to use you and how you are going to invest. Because as you pray about your investment, I want you to know some things. I want you to understand what God is calling us as a church to. But I also want you to understand what God is calling you as an individual or you as a family to. So you're going to see some dates. I think we have a slide for it. You're going to see some dates up on the screen. They're marked as home vision dates. These are basically home groups that are going to take place where we're going to invite you. You will receive a letter this week inviting you to be a part of one of those home groups. And the purpose of that home group, that one meeting, is to help you understand what God is calling us as a church to in the Spring Mills area. It's going to help you answer questions. It's going to allow you to ask questions. We're going to sit down together. We're going to give you some information. There's going to be a time where you can speak up and say, how are we going to do this? What's going to be happening here? Explain this piece. And you're going to be able to get your questions answered about what is going on. Please be looking for that letter this week so you can be a part of one of those. At the same time, not only do I want you to understand what God is calling us to as a church, but I want you to understand what God calls you to individually and what God is calling your family to. So in the month of October, we are going to set aside focus groups specifically to discuss the concept of stewardship. The four weeks in October on Sundays following the worship service, we're going to have groups set up and we're going to discuss this idea of stewardship. It's going to start on October the 6th. We're going to cover that concept for four weeks. At the same time, we're going to provide you with a devotional series that you can go through individually to see where God might be calling you to invest and what he's calling you to personally. I hope you'll invest the time into these things so you can understand the way God is working through you or with you individually as he pushes us, leads us back to the Spring Mills area. Thank you, Pastor Brock. And I believe that's going to come down the aisle right now so you can take that very a copy of that page right there so that the men could come and pass those out while we wrap up here. That would be great. I encourage you to put that on your refrigerator, in your Bible. Um, take one of those, each person, um, or whatever works for you, and put that someplace to be a reminder to you to pray and, and to be involved in what God is doing. I just want to say this as, you, as these go around and, and, and you see these dates and put this someplace where you can find it. One of the things about the Lord's call is it's costly. It is. And all I can speak to is my own personal example. And every person in this room who's been following Christ could have an example of what the following of Christ costs in your life. You know, we like, we like to, well, I like to stand up here and talk about the 
the opportunity God put before us 11 years ago. And I can say it now with such confidence. God called me. I was sitting in the cafeteria or the, the gymnasium, and God called me, and, and away we went. It's, it's nice to sell it that way now. But 12 years ago, when I came home to my wife, and I said, Honey, you know that nice, comfortable, safe job that I have? You know how I'm you know, a pastor at this big church, and we have no worries, no concerns. Been there, you know, a lot of seniority. You know how settled we are? We're going to leave all that. We're going to leave all that. You know what it was like to, to come in to the uh, pastoral staff meeting in this church and say, guys, God's calling me away. Where to? I don't know. A few miles in that direction, I think. You know how scary that was? See, I can tell the story now, and you know, with all our bravado, and oh yes, I you know stood there with a you know bandana around my forehead, and away we went like Rambo or something. But it wasn't that way. It wasn't that way. Every walk with Christ requires faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. I invite you to this walk. It'll be the greatest journey. You'll be part of the greatest journey, the adventure walk of faith behind Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for letting us be here today. God, you've blessed us with meeting in this room. We thank you for that. We don't take it for granted. You give, you take away. And Lord, you have allowed us to be here right now, and we thank you for it. Thank you, Lord, you've opened up our eyes to who Jesus really is that we're more than astonished, we're changed by your grace. We ask for your blessing, Lord, on our church. We ask you to continue to lead us. We pray you provide for us. We pray you to continue to open up doors for us. Lord, we are so excited to see what's going to happen in the next few months. Oh, it's such a great, great story, the walk of faith. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. Let's see where Jesus' authority went as we are again walk through the Great Commission. Can we have it on the screen, please? There it is, the words of Jesus. Read it with me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen? Let's be sent. Head out to focus groups, you guys. Lord bless you.